So before we get started with this week's show, I want to introduce you all, or rather reintroduce you to someone very special who's been on Girl Boss Radio before, and she's actually been on the show twice, and she's here with a special announcement for everybody, Aurora James. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm so good, Sophia. I'm excited to be here, and I'm so happy to be part of the Girl Boss family. So you have news. What, what's your news? I have amazing news. So we just finished recording the final episode of In Progress. And we have been laughing, we have been crying. I feel like there has been major breakthroughs with every single guest, and I might be a different person now. Isn't it great that you, as a host, get to learn? You know, it's like, yeah, you're hosting, but you get to have these amazing conversations with amazing people. And It was like interviewing, but also like personal therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been, I've loved listening to it, and I've learned a lot, and it's inspired me to take some time to reflect my own journey, which is, hmm, needs a lot of time for reflection. And you're going to tell us a little bit more about the show later in today's episode, right? Correct. So stay tuned, listeners, and subscribe to In Progress if you haven't already. And tell your friends. Yes, because that's what good friends do. They wouldn't let each other miss In Progress. Of course. Everybody, make sure you subscribe to In Progress, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, or follow it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Go do it now. Do it right now. Hi, I'm Aurora James, founder and creative director of Brother Bellies, and this is Girl Boss Radio. So I'm here because Sophia Amoruso wanted me to fill in for this special bonus episode of Girl Boss Radio with none other than my very special guest and friend, Sophia Bush. Sophia is an actress, activist, director, and producer. You might know her from her roles on television shows One Tree Hill and Chicago PD. More on that later. But that's only part of what Sophia does. She's also an incredibly passionate activist who's become a vital voice in the Me Too movement. To be honest with you guys, the thing that made me fall in love with Sophia a long time ago is how unabashedly loud she is when it comes to speaking out about everything and anything that's important to her. Here's a little piece from our conversation. My mom used to say I was Joan of Arc in the cradle. You always had a sword. You were always running toward the problem. You were always defending other people. I've always wanted to go toward what needs help. And I've always done it with a fire. I've always been like, let's march, let's chant, let's protest, let's write. We have to do something. Welcome to Girl Boss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women, exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. On today's show, Sophia Bush and I talk about what to do when you outgrow your dream. Plus, you can expect tips for how to handle workplace abuse and harassment and all kinds of horrible things, and we get into what true self-care really looks like. Hint, it's not a sheet mask. Here's our conversation. Hi, Sophia. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today on Girl Boss Radio. This is so fun. I, I love know. that you're hosting this. I know. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Me too. So obviously we know each other, but I kind of want to know the thing that I don't know is how you got your start. And also I want you to clarify for me if you are or are not Canadian. Because in my mind, you're Canadian and I feel like we have a Canadian connection. But then I'm also like, wait, she's not Canadian. We have a deep Canadian connection, but <laughs> I was born here in the U.S. Got it. Um, my dad and obviously my dad's entire family are from Canada. And my dad moved uh, from Montreal to L.A. to go to Art Center. So I spent a lot of my childhood in Canada in the summer. And I always feel like I know Canadians because we, anyone who has family from there or is from there, we pronounce certain words differently. Like Americans say yes. Canada and we say Canada. And I say Montreal, not Montreal. And Vancouver, not Vancouver. Like right. there's weird things. So I can always hear a Canadian in the room uh -huh. and I get excited about it. So, you know, Maybe I'm like that's a, how you picked up that I was Canadian because I feel like I said about. Yeah. Which is like the very Canadian, like about a roof or something. Yeah. Like there's going like out. those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. going out. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone thinks Canadians say A, but that's not really a thing. 
No, I feel like Americans say A more than Canadians do. I agree. Hmm. Okay, so you feel like that Canadian energy yeah. sort of stuck with you? Did your dad have, like, a Canadian vibe? Like, did he... Because, you know, the whole thing about Canada and America is, like, they are drastically different when it comes to just, like, how we approach ideas mm. about living together and, mm. like, I don't know, how you treat each other and how you think about the world. How would you say Canadians approach the idea of living together? Um, Culturally, very different. Like, when people talk about Toronto, which is where I'm from, in New York, I always say that... New York is a melting pot, mm. a cultural melting pot, mm. versus Toronto is a mosaic. Mm. Because I think that we retain culture in a different way, and we celebrate it in a different way, and we all sort of like click together with it. Like I remember even in my school growing up, like we would talk about Ramadan, we would talk mm. about... Christmas, we would talk about Hanukkah, like mm-hmm. it was just a thing, and you would get excited about like Chinese New Year. Yeah, and I had that too here, interestingly enough. Oh, you did? Yeah. Where did you go to school? I went to a very, I, I mean, I guess now I didn't realize it was progressive then, but I went to an all-girls prep school in Pasadena, and I mean, we did Ramadan and Greek Easter and Hanukkah and Christmas and Kwanzaa and I mean everything anybody whose family had any kind of cultural heritage could literally put their holidays on the school calendar and we would celebrate yeah see that's amazing and it's such a beautiful way to be and I think as a kid who you know because my dad is obviously an immigrant I helped my dad study for his citizenship test when he was 12 when I was 12 no way yeah I made flashcards and helped my dad get ready no way. and the questions you have to answer I'm like there are no American people who know the answers to these questions this is insane um but my mom's first generation my mom's mom came through Ellis Island oh. uh, from Italy and so it's this really interesting thing because people have this romanticized thing of like, and then our families came to America for a better life and we came through and the Statue of Liberty was there. And I'm like, y- y'all realize that's still what people are trying to do, right? Right. But like, truthfully, my grandmother's side got to come here with very little rules. You know, not not to like take it too political, but it's not lost on me the irony that you know, Donald Trump's grandfather wouldn't be allowed into America under Trump's immigration policy now. And I guess maybe I have a perspective on it because I grew up in a household where my dad was becoming a citizen and my mom was the first of her family to be American. Um, And I would imagine similarly in certain ways for you, moving here from Canada, like we just have a different, we have a different perspective on on all of it, I think, including, to your point, living together. Well, I think it's also so interesting, too, because the whole idea of, like, an immigrant or, like, first-generation and second-generation people, like, often when people are talking about that idea and they're thinking about immigration, like, they are truthfully not thinking about white people. Oh, yeah. They're not, when they're thinking of, like, oh, you you know, the daughter of immigrants, like, they're not thinking of, like, Mm -hmm. you. Oh, Trust as 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 the token white person in this conversation, <laughs> I've I've talked about understanding immigration from a personal perspective because of my childhood. And I've literally had people who look like me be like, that doesn't count. Your dad came from Canada. And I'm like, he had he had to take a citizenship test like anybody else. Right. What do you mean it doesn't count? It doesn't count because he's white. Right. Yeah, OK. It's really interesting and strange and I think that reading Ta-Nehisi Coates you know reading his book and having the language put to something I understood just by being a person who observes culture but having someone put the language to the reality that if you go back a couple generations like to my grandmother or my grandfather's families who were living here who immigrated here there was deep classism and judgment of people like Irish immigrants like my grandfather, Italian immigrants like my grandmother. You know, the the sort of like American wasp culture looked down on those people, called them derogatory terms. And then suddenly wasps were like, oh, we're becoming outnumbered. Well, those people are, are, are white. So that now we're all just going to become white people. Totally. And and he he named the homogenization of whiteness 
And I was like, oh my God, that's it. And I had, I just hadn't had that phrase ever said to me before, the homogenization of whiteness. Right. And I see how it plays out in the way that even when I talk about my experiences with immigration, people kind of roll their eyes because they don't think it's for people like me. Right. We act as though some people are more deserving of the hard work that leads to the dream than others. It, it really, it's one of the things that like scrambles my brain and makes me go just rage face. Yeah, it's, I mean, people have just a really, I think that right now there's so many new concepts that are being presented to people mm. that they have to sort of put everything in a box. Mm. And they like to put those boxes like outside of themselves so that they still feel safe. Mm-hmm you know, and can isolate themselves from mm-hmm. the experience. And I think that is why we're having so many new conversations because we are finally understanding what intersectionality means. We are finally understanding that people can exist at the crossroads of various forms of oppression or difficulty. And I think that the complexity of how to, if you imagine the, the places where people exist on a graph, like that's a graph with a lot of dots. And I think the complexity is making people anxious. So they just want to oversimplify. But I will say like the thing that inspires me so much is how many people have said, I have to change my life. I have to do something differently. I want to be out there on the front line. I want to talk to people. I want to have more elevated conversations. It's it's just so important that so many people are saying, I'm unwilling to stick my head in the sand. And I think that we always have to remember where we were and also be completely okay acknowledging what wasn't okay about it so that when, when we move forward, we do it differently. Right. And... This is probably the longest and most roundabout way of answering your first question, but I, I would imagine that this makes you unsurprised that my intention uh, was to be a psychology major. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, as a kid, I, w- I wanted to go to med school and I wanted uh, to get to also get a psychology degree. As like a young kid, I didn't know if I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon or a therapist and I was like maybe I'll do both my parents thought that was irrational but they said fine you know yeah do you. <laughs> and then I started doing theater in high school oh you did mm-hmm. okay 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 I'm very curious about this because yeah. I feel like every time I like talk to someone who's an actor I always assume they started when they were like two no oh my god my parents would never have allowed that but I did theater through high school and my senior year in high school told my parents I wanted to go to school to study theater mm-hmm. and not medicine. And they were like, fuck, <laughs> you know, and because, you you know, it's like when you come from any kind of immigrant family, it's like you can be a lawyer or a doctor or a lawyer. Or did we mention a doctor Seriously? You know, or go into finance? And that was never happening for me. And so my my parents. um my mom said you know it's gonna be fine she's too smart she's gonna get bored she's gonna hate it I give it a year and and she'll she'll change her mind and the irony was that I was in this I, I went to the University of Southern California I got into their BFA theater program it's like a whole crazy process you have to audition they accept 14 students a year blah blah are you serious it's like a big deal wow and I got there and was like Oh, I hate this. Oh, um, no. And so I said I was going to transfer out of the program. It, I was too young, I think, to understand that sort of arts education. And I'd come from such an academically minded junior high and high school that I got into this program and was like, all this is doing is making me self-conscious about every choice I make as an actor or a performer. I don't. I don't feel like I'm learning. It wasn't methodology. It wasn't like Meisner, Stanislavski world. And for me, anyway, for some people it was a great fit, but for me it was not a fit. And so I told them I was going to transfer out of the program, and that caused a whole nightmare. Wow. And they were like, you can't do that. And and I was young and sort of naive and thought, well, why not? I pay my tuition. Like, why can't I? And I, I wound up not transferring 
into a medical school, but transferring into the journalism school and then started studying journalism and political science. Wait, so this is really interesting to me because it's like they're only accepting 14 people into that program. So I'm sure when you were like applying and going through the whole thing, it was like every single day you were probably like, oh my gosh, I hope I get in, I hope I get in, I hope I get in. And then how did you get to that moment where your heart sinks for a second and you're like, this is not for me and I'm for sure going to make this choice? Because I think there's so many women Mm -hmm. who once they get something that they know and people say they're supposed to love and be so excited about Mm -hmm. and then suddenly... It takes a tremendous amount of strength to be like, actually, this is not for me. I think for me, I, I will I will, and I have in certain relationships and in certain environments in my life. That program for one, um, a job that I did in Chicago for another. I have stayed past the expiration point of my own experience because of that kind of pressure. When you get to a point where you realize that going into class or going into your job makes you miserable, when you hear the alarm go off in the morning and your first thought is, ugh, and you trudge through your day and the whole day you're wondering when you get to leave and when there will be some sort of reprieve, then you're not in an environment that's good for you. Right. And, you know, obviously there there is privilege in even being able to acknowledge that. I had the privilege of being in a large enough university that I could say, this really is making me sad and depressed and making me feel weird and I don't like it. And I had the option to transfer into another department. I had the option to go more back into academia, but also kind of ironically to be studying the stories of real people, what was happening in real time. And those are the kinds of stories I want to tell as a performer. Right. I want to tell stories about people that feel real. Right. And it informed my work in a way that was really good for me. And I think, you know, there are people who who will be listening to this or people out there in the world who are stuck in a job that they don't like and they can't just transfer to another department. But what I think is incredibly important is acknowledging how you feel. And if something is really weighing on you, where you can find your strength in the immediate moment is beginning to architect your exit. Beginning to apply for those other jobs, beginning to figure out how to get out of the situation that you're in, beginning to figure out what your next steps are going to be. Make yourself a plan that that's where your strength will come from. And I think that, you know, the reality is nothing happens overnight. We don't just get to quit the jobs we hate in the moment or, you know, get the dream job overnight. But we can really take back more control of our own experience than I think we often feel when we're experiencing something negative. I think you also have to make space for something new to come to you too. Yeah. You know, even if it's just in your mind and realizing Mm -hmm. and like vocalizing and exactly what you said, like taking first steps to like allow something else in, like applying for the job or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so then you transferred to journalism, <laughs> and then what? Like, were you still, at that point when you left, you still knew you wanted to be an actor, though? Yeah, I mean, at that point, I was already working. I was, oh, wow, okay. I was... Um, did you have, like, an agent and stuff? Yeah, by the time I got to college, I did, and so I was going on auditions all the time mm-hmm. on you know, in my free hours when I wasn't in class and I made my team crazy because I would say, you know, I can work on spring break and I can work in the summer. Yeah. And I remember my agent saying to me, you cannot treat your career like an extracurricular activity. And I, I was dumbfounded and I looked at him and said, but it is. It has to be <laughs> extracurricular because right. I'm in school. Right. And, you know, I was taking a full course load and um, I was doing an honors program and it was a whole thing. But the the summer between my junior and senior year uh, I was working a lot that summer and I booked a show and I remember talking to my advisor in the journalism school Annie Mateen she was so cool Mm -hmm. and I said you know I don't think I can take this show I don't think I can do it which show is it well I'll tell you okay I said to her like I I'm going to miss my senior year and you only get one senior year in college. And you know, what are we, she looked at me and was like, what are you doing? This is what you want to do. Go. School is always going to be here. It's one year. You've done three years of study. You know, it was this whole moment where she said, if this is what you want, you have to go and chase it. Like it's not always going to come knocking. And 
thanks to Annie sort of setting me straight, I picked up and moved to North Carolina and I started working on One Tree Hill. Oh my gosh, no way. Yeah. And you were going to turn that down. Yeah. For my senior year in oh. high school, for like for like a winter <laughs> formal. What? Uh. This is what I'm saying. Like, I was a naive kid. I, you know, I was 20. Like, right. what did I know about anything? Yeah. And you were like, this is the program that I'm in and this is the vibe and like, I'm doing really good here. I don't know that I want to like branch out and do this different thing, even though this is what I've been like working towards. I just sort of had this thought of, you know, work will work will happen, but it happens after college. Right. And and I, I think, again, maybe it's just being raised by, you know, the parents that I was raised by. They're amazing people. Um but, you know, my mom grew up in a household of people who came to this country. My dad came to this country to create a life. They, they're they very, like, dot your I's and cross your T's. And they're very organized people. And, and you just, you do things by the system and you study hard. And there was never an option for me to not get straight A's. Like, that was not a thing that was ever going to happen in my household. Um, and... I think I just always thought I had to obey, like be in the system, paint by the numbers. Right. And the irony is that when I look back and, you know, hindsight, they say is twenty twenty, and cliches are cliches because they're true. Hello. <laughs> uh, I look back and I go, oh, I was always a little radical. Really? Like I, I led a walkout, you know, a group of students and I like led a walkout in middle school at my school to protest something that upset us. I transferred out of this, you know, elite program and did the thing that I wanted to do, which nobody understood, but my journalism education, my political science education, my writing experience, that has guided everything that is important to me in my life outside of my career. And, you know, I am who I am. I am not what I do. Um, I... Yeah, I've j- I've always been a little radical. I've always kind of been like, damn the man. Hmm. And But where did you really get that from? Like, you think it's just innate in you? Yeah. For me, I do. Interesting. Yeah. Like, my mom used to say I was Joan of Arc in the cradle. Oh, wow. She was like, you were always, you always had a sword. You were always running toward the problem. You were always defending other people. Like... I I got suspended once from school because a sixth grader punched my friend Matt in the face when we were in the fourth grade. And you a, a little girl in fourth grade and a boy in sixth grade are very differently sized uh-huh. children. And I just stalked right up to him and kicked him in the nuts and like no sent way. him down. And I got in trouble. And I was like, well, you hurt my friend. You know, oh, I don't know. I've just always... I've always wanted to go toward what needs help. Right. Um, And I've always done it with a fire. I've always been like, let's march, let's chant, let's protest, let's, you know, Hmm. let's write, let's, we have to do something. And, you know, I, I think that that's why I find women to play who have a little bit of that energy. And I also think that it's the thing that, informs the way I show up in service in activist circles in in community it's why I use my platform the way that I do I don't know how else to do it I I I constantly want to be doing more do you feel a lot of pressure on that because for me like and I it's like people will troll for like not doing when they think you're like not doing enough I don't get that I get the opposite really (laughs) oh yeah yeah, yeah. People just like I get a lot of like shut up and act. Like Are you we serious? don't care about this. We, oh yeah. And I'm just like this is fun. You know what's cool about this? It's my space. You don't have to right. be here. Right. Um I'm very comfortable with a block button. I'm just like I'm not here for your negativity. Before we continue with our conversation, we have some exciting news for you that I don't want you to miss out on. We've been working on another amazing podcast for you to listen to. It's called In Progress. And here to let us know all about it is none other than Aurora James, the founder of Brother Valley's. Aurora, take it from here. Hi, listeners. It's Aurora James here. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, it's been a few weeks since we started this In Progress journey. And I kind of just want to take a quick trip down memory lane. 
Season two of In Progress is all about our origin stories. One of my favorite conversations was with Beat Simkin. She is a healer who lives in Montauk right now, but like grew up with her dad, who was like a shaman, and then kind of went on this really long, dark journey through drugs and like horrible boyfriends and made it out on the other side, which was very mind blowing for me. Um, I also talked to Tiffany Aliche, who could not be more different than me because she's amazing with money. And she sort of helped me self-correct, and I think that hopefully it'll help you self-correct. Another person that I talked to was Anina Bing. Um, She started out as a model in Europe and was like traveling around the world, and then she was a blogger, and now she has this like huge fashion business. She's sort of done like all the things that all the girls like want to do these days. And those were honestly just some of the conversations. We have laughed, we have cried, we have grown, we have taken the journey. Making this podcast in partnership with Toomey has been so special, and I really hope you guys have enjoyed it. And if you haven't gotten a chance to listen, this is your chance. Consider this your friendly nudge to check out In Progress. And if you've already listened, you're amazing. Thank you. But have you gone ahead and rated and reviewed the show? It really helps us reach new people, and I think that people need to hear this podcast. And plus, I always love a good podcast recommendation. So go ahead and share in progress with your friends. They will thank you. Okay, that's all for now. Bye. Thank you so much, Aurora. Now let's get back to the show. How important do you feel like it is to speak out about things? Like, I know that you obviously were one of the um, founding members of Me Too, and I, I felt like that movement was so incredibly important. And, like, I think there's so many women that have a hard time speaking out, and especially if it's, like, after the fact. Because then everyone is like, well, why didn't you say something earlier? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I love that argument. And the irony being, do you think we didn't? Well, there's that. Do you really think we didn't? Right. You can't ask someone why they didn't do something that they did do that you just don't know about. Right. And why, again, given where we were culturally, we did things differently 10 years ago than we do them now. Things were different four years ago than they are now. Right. It's just the reality. Right. But for me, speaking out feels like the reason that I exist. It's not like a side hustle or a you know every once in a while someone will be like the only reason you're political is because it's good for your career and I'm like do you know how many endorsement wow. deals yeah and I'm like do you know how many crazy. endorsement deals I've lost because brands tell me I'm too political and if I would just tone it down by x percent they'd love for me to be the face of this or the face of that and I'm like keep right. your fucking blood money yeah I don't want it no because even like with my shoes like there's some stores that won't carry Brother Bellies because of like how politically active I am and they feel like that's going to alienate their customer it's so stupid and short-sighted and for me I think for any of us you me so many of our friends if we are privileged enough to have platforms and we don't do anything with them right silence is the tool of the oppressor I am not here to be complicit in any of that shit right that's not what I came to this planet to do so for me understanding that my 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 longtime penchant for serving and and for journalism and for truth telling that's going to inform everything about my spaces and if people don't like it they don't have to follow me <laughs> like bye i don't care um and you know it's interesting too cuz one of the things i've realized about it is it does bring a lot more of that. People want to talk about issues. They want to ask about things. They want to bring other things to my attention, which I'm all very grateful for. And sometimes I'll, I'll say to people, I'll be like, what makes you laugh? Like, can we talk about something that's really funny? Because I'm also a goofball and I spend a lot of time laughing with my friends, but I spend more time researching. Right. And it's a, it's a balance that I like. Yeah. It's a balance that makes me feel like I'm doing well with the gifts I have. I think one of the things to me that I found really incredibly inspiring about you, um, and you've talked about this a little bit, was like the whole how you handled the Chicago PD thing. So for those of you guys who are listening who don't know, Chicago PD 
you left because that was not a great environment for you. Yeah, I I left. Um, this was pre Me Too breaking, uh, pre Harvey, just by about four months. So uh, they got very lucky. And I, I left because I was in a very toxic work environment and it was incredibly abusive. And I asked for help a lot and didn't get it. And finally was like, I don't, I don't have to do this. I don't, this isn't a thing I have to tolerate. Because I think for so many people, they're like, okay, I'm in a not great situation. And again, that's why I thought it was so interesting about your story about like getting this like amazing thing and then being like, this isn't for me. Because it's like when you're in a job that everyone thinks you're supposed to be so grateful to have Mm -hmm. and you realize it's not for you, it's like, how do you make an exit strategy? And like reading how you like went about that and were really methodical and was like, look, like I'm going to I'm going to let you know Mm -hmm. that like this is not working for me. Mm -hmm. And I've realized, you know, that it's not working for me. And like these are the options. Yeah. I mean, it was again, there was just no other way to do it. And in hindsight, there are things I would do differently. You know, if I were speaking to women, if there are women listening who are in Uh, an abusive situation at work, things I would have done differently. The first time that I was touched at work, I would have not made a phone call. I would have sent an email. I would have created a paper trail because there, there were repeated incidents at work that I would leave and make a phone call and I wasn't sending emails. And so when after phone calls and sit downs and conversations repeatedly over and over and over again with the people in power who were not only morally supposed to be protecting me, but also legally required to do so after they were failing to do that. Um, when we got into our third season and I finally just said, you're all bullshit and I'm calling HR. Uh, HR said, well, where are the, where are the emails? Where are the dates and times of these alleged incidents? And I was like, I'm sorry, alleged? Wow. Like when somebody says, I remember when I I talked about it and it's so funny because I've been talking about it since it happened. Whenever I'm asked, I'm just I'm very honest because I'm not here to create a culture that perpetuates silence around abusive women. I'm just not doing it. Of course. So I've always been frank. And then for whatever reason, like a year and a half after I left and I was on Dax's podcast, it it became like global news. And I was like, have none of y'all been paying attention? What's going on? And, you know, somebody said, well, she claims. And I said, no, no, no. No. Don't you dare use the word claims. I am recounting. I'm not claiming. These things that happen to me are fact. They're not up for debate. And I can tell you exactly who I called and when I called and who knew and who knew when and what was said and who was in the room as a witness. And, you know, I was like, no, 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 no. You don't want to play that game with me. Right. You don't want to diminish my experience. Through language. Through language. I'm not here for it. How old were you? Um, I started, when did I start on PD? I guess I, I would have been 30. First of all, when something happens, obviously you want to pick up the phone. You're not trying, your like default position mm-hmm. is not being like, let me recount this over email. Yeah. You know, your default thing is to be like, help me. Yeah. I need help. I need help. This like, is not this okay. This doesn't I need feel help. good. Yeah. And then to like tell people and just have them be like. Well, but it's also interesting because what, one of the things that I think about, and it's funny, I, I heard through the grapevine And I don't say it to be critical. I I say it more to understand how these systems maintain themselves. I heard through the grapevine that a couple of the guys who I used to work with, who I do really love, are like, God, like, why won't she stop talking about it? Like, this is really bad for us. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to stop talking about it because the system that allowed this to happen to me is still perpetuating itself. And, you know, I'm not going to not share the lesson because when we share lessons, when women experience, I talked to Gloria Steinem about this recently, (laughs) Um, but we sat and we talked about not this issue in specific, but many things for a couple of hours together. And she was talking to me about the importance of talking circles. Yeah. And the reason that I will share things that people say, wow, she opened up. I'm like, no, I'm just not hoarding information. 
Right. I don't believe in hoarding experience or information. I think that especially for women, we need to share with each other. We need to say things like, had I known, I would have sent emails. What I should have done, but nobody teaches us this, is gotten off the phone and sent an email to the producer I called, to the boss that I called, to the person who I called to ask for help, and said, thank you so much for our phone conversation. I just want to reiterate in writing what happened today, and I should have CC'd my lawyers. Right. But nobody ever told me that that's what you were supposed to do. So I want to tell other women. Yeah. I want them to know. And, you know, I I have grace for... There was a while where I was really pissed where I was like, I can't believe like, you know, why didn't anybody ever stand up for me? And why didn't any of the guys ever say anything? And and now I also I have a little bit of understanding where I know that when it's in a working environment, everyone is just so scared about keeping their job. Right. And that's that's not just a Hollywood thing. That's true in any industry. It's the reason that people look away. It's the reason that the first time I experienced a physical issue with said coworker, one of my other male coworkers was sitting three feet away from me looking me in the eyes like wide-eyed the entire time that it happened and never got up and never said anything and I was like oh you're paralyzed by fear too interesting so again how do we unpack why we're afraid how do we unpack this fear of job loss that so many people feel when something inappropriate is happening in their workplace you know because I witnessed that same person in a bar um St. Patrick's Day in Chicago is a real shit show and I say that with love like I got mad love for Chicago by the way I want to be very clear I I go back four times a year I have community there I love that city I I love Chicago and so like we as city residents like St. Patrick's Day gets wild in that city and it got a little wild a couple of years ago and there was this dude in a bar just like a terrible like lawyer bro you know the kind of guy who like wears a brown leather belt like with every outfit and you're like please make it stop even on casual Friday like just stop (laughs) um he was like one of those legal bros and he got really just like verbally inappropriate with me in the bar and wouldn't stop and like I I kept being like, dude, you got to stop. You got to stop. And he wasn't stopping. And finally, I was like, this is about to get awkward. I'm going to go get somebody and like have you removed because this is not OK. You don't you can't talk to women like this. And then he started screaming at me and and my coworker because we were all out together. There were like 20 of us out. And my coworker heard it and was like, what did you just say to her? And it turned into like a scene from a movie, like just a straight impending bar brawl. Like everyone was yelling And I was like, oh, you know exactly where the line is. And you would never let someone cross that line with me. Right. But you'll let it happen at work. Where does your fear come from? I had to do enough work and unpack enough of my experience to then be able to start unpacking the experiences of the other people in the room, too. Right. And to find the grace to say, I'm not going to be mad at you. What I am going to do is try to figure out how to create spaces for conversation that can illuminate the reality of the issue so that it stops happening to people. Right. Because none of us deserve it. Women don't deserve it. Men don't deserve it. And I think it's really important that we talk about this stuff. And so that's why I've been really frank about it. Just because I think it's the only way that any of us learn how to deal with it if and when it happens to us. Totally. And I like am fully there with you about the talking circle. I definitely do that with my friends. I feel like this podcast has been that for me in a lot of ways because it's like unless you talk through something, you can't really even begin to unpack it. And I think it's also really important for people to understand because I think like bad things happen and people take it personally a lot of women like Mm. you know self-blame and count themselves out Mm. and I think that it's also really important for women to understand that like horrible things can happen to you and you can still go on and like do great things yes it's like not about you it's about them 100 percent, and that's true on so many levels of what we experience with other people it is generally about them. 
Like, what would you have done differently in that situation when they when you kept going to people and being like, "This isn't okay," and they were? I would have anything? left. You would have. Left. I would have actually left set. But there is such a thing, and you get cultured. Working on a set is really hard, and people don't get it. They think it's glamorous. It's the antithesis of that. Because of the 200 people on a set and everybody working toward the same goal, and every, it's, like you're, it's like you're rowing the biggest cruise ship you've ever seen together. Like Everybody is pulling those oars, and if one person stops, the whole thing falls apart. Right. We are like a band of brothers on a set. Right. Like your crew is your family. And and so there's a lot of pressure, especially I think for someone like me who often is like the tugboat. Like I take it upon myself to like cheerlead and be the morale booster and really mother and love on my sets. And the idea that like you can't be late because if you're late, 200 people don't go home on time to have dinner with their kids on the off night that you wrap early enough where you could have dinner with your family anyway. Right. Like there's a lot of responsibility to each other. And I would have never walked off of a set and made everybody deal with the fallout of me leaving and having to shut it down and not being able to film for the rest of the day. And like, I don't know what kind of a diva person would do that, but. Now I know I would have walked out the door and not fucking come back and been like, oh, no, because you expect me to take it and be professional. But my personhood is under attack. And so I'm going home and you can deal with the person who's breaking their professional behavior, treating me the way they are. I, I took so much of it on where it was like, I have to be stronger. I have to be tougher. I have to just like I am never going to let them see me tremble I will never let a person here see me cry I will I will act as though whatever's coming at me you're like a gnat in my peripheral vision I I internalized it in a way where it became this thing where I had to be tougher and get the day done and make sure we were on the next shot and and do it and that was never my burden to bear that was never my responsibility And what I would do differently is I would have just walked right out. I would have stood up and said, I'm out. I'll see you guys tomorrow. And I would have walked off the set and gotten in the van and had someone take me home and turned off my phone. And I would have just been gone because that would have made them deal with him differently. Yeah, that's so right. And so in a way, being met with such irresponsibility made me double down on being a leader. But I did it at my own expense. And I think that I, I didn't know that then. I've obviously unpacked this uh, in a very deep way and can talk about it now. But it's, it's a thing that I think a lot of women do because we're expected to be everything to everyone at every moment. So interesting, too, because you were saying that a crew is like your family. They are. You know, and it's yeah. like a very, like, close-knit, you know, environment. And that's like when a lot of bad things happen. Like when most women have like unfortunate sexual things happen to them, it's like with someone that they know or it's in their family. And I think with young girls too, like, you know, you, I mean, any age woman, when these things happen in a family structure, you don't want to say anything too, because it's like, how is that going to affect the entire family? My body started to fall apart. I mean, I went into adrenal failure. Wow. Like, I I was not okay at all. But I was so in the rhythm of, like, get it done and fight for these people and make sure that they're not being attacked and that they're getting less of it, you know? And really, for a long time, believed I could shield everyone else around me if I could just like stand you know before it and not not break down right and not let it affect you and so while I thought I wasn't breaking down my body started to break down and then I was just kind of like wait what am I doing this for it seems like it should be so obvious but when you have that big aha moment I was like I don't have to be here but again when you go on to a show you know you sign a six-year contract so in a way I thought I was gonna have to be there and then I finally just said, either you let me out or <laughs> I'll I'm write it. using my journalism yeah. skills and writing an op-ed for the Literally. I was yeah. like, I'll just, I'll write an op-ed. Like, it's up to you guys. Tell me what you want me to do. 
Well, I think that's also what's so interesting now about social media as well, because like women have some sort of platform, you know, they have some place where they can like archive that, timestamp that, put it out Mm -hmm. there publicly. It's a tool that you can use. Yes. And that's what was so interesting post Dax's podcast when it became this thing and news. I was like, you guys are like, I am embarrassed for your journalism skills. Um, some of these people and they were like well now she's claiming and I was like would you like me to show you every Instagram post in which I've written about this for the last two years here you go and I put them in a carousel with the dates and I was like just so you know I've always been talking about it right and here's all the other articles and all the other places it's part of my experience and my story so when anyone like yourself asks about it I'm gonna talk about it and be frank because the shaming and the silence is what keeps us held in these situations and I'm actually really proud of myself that at this point in my life I can talk about it frankly I can talk about it in in not explicit detail but in enough detail to be clear and I can do this and have this conversation with you I'm not sweating I'm not crying I'm not shaking I'm not having any sort of traumatic response in my body anymore I used to I don't have that anymore because I've worked my fucking ass off to get here you know, I'm really glad to be here and I'm never going to shy away from it because I don't want other women to feel like they can't talk about what they're going through. No, absolutely. And I think too, like it's because as you mentioned, it's so much work to get to where you are right now with that experience, like really hard work that that's why it's also so important for us to remember that we like need to believe women Mm -hmm. because coming out about things is not easy. No. And there's a good chance that like the first few people that you tell, like might not even believe you. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got screamed at by one of my bosses screamed at. He said, do you know what you've done? And I, and I just, it was like an out-of-body experience. I said, do, do I know what I've done? I can't believe you involved HR. And I went, yeah, because I've been asking for help for two years and no one has helped me. And I said, you're mad at me and not him. Right. What? And so, yes, to your point, we need to believe women. Nobody, nobody gains anything from talking about this. We do it for each other. We, we speak so that in the future, our sisters may not be silenced. Period. End of story. Nobody's gaining personally from this, but we put ourselves out there in defense of our sisterhood. Right. That's the only reason. And like existence. Yeah. This episode of Girl Boss is brought to you by LaCroix Sparkling Water. LaCroix was developed to give health-conscious consumers innocent refreshment, flavor, and sparkle. Zero calories, zero sweeteners, and zero sodium? That equals innocent. All LaCroix flavors are confirmed to be derived from natural sources with natural fruit essences. For a bolder but still innocent taste, try LaCroix's Curate flavors. Pineapple strawberry, Appleberry, cherry lime, kiwi watermelon, blackberry cucumber, and cantaloupe pink grapefruit. Made only with flavor ingredients certified as natural, each LaCroix product is vegan, gluten-free, Whole30, non-GMO, and produced without a BPA liner. LaCroix is also environmentally friendly, and all LaCroix cans are perpetually sustainable and recyclable. Families everywhere value the wholesomeness of LaCroix and the innocence of its natural essence has propelled LaCroix to America's top-selling branded domestic sparkling water. You can join the LaCroix community on social at LaCroix Water. That's L-A-C-R-O-I-X Water. And for more information and a full list of retailers, visit LaCroixWater.com. Again, that's L-A-C-R-O-I-X Water.com. Okay, now let's get back to the show so amazing that you're able to like sit here and actually talk about all of this stuff that happened to you and like dealing with the PTSD and and even when you were going through it at the time I guess I kind of want to know like how did you hold it together and like exercise a certain level of self-care or self-love I think there's some aspects of self-care that like feel a little bit like a fire sale you know mm, marketing and then there and then there's some that are really good and 
some of it I didn't even realize. You know, I'm a people person. I really like to talk to people. But I got to a point where I literally couldn't have interactions with strangers. And that's a weird thing when you work on TV. But fans, and especially for someone like me, I was on a show for nine years, almost ten years of my life. And then I went on to do this other show. So there's fans who you know, now at this point have been with me for a decade and a half who are like waiting outside of the set in Chicago and I could not be touched by people I didn't know. And so I started having to set boundaries for myself being like, would you mind if we shook hands instead? Would you mind little things where it was like, I don't know you, please don't touch me. Don't hug me. I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, and that, that was self-care. Just saying to people, hey, can we shake hands? I, I don't know you. And trying to do that in a friendly way, trying to figure out how to like make it to crack a joke and make it comfortable for people, but also set a boundary for myself was a really big act of self-care and giving myself permission to take better care of myself than I was taking care of people who I do not know was a way to begin getting a little autonomy back. Um, to your point, you know, about how you do a lot of talking circles with your friends. Same. I I started talking to people um, outside of my working world about it. And that was really what I needed because there was too much fear and scarcity within the confines of the job. Right. And when I started speaking to people outside of it and I went into the specifics, which I've never bothered talking about publicly because what's the point? Um but people, I mean, people were horrified and seeing the shock and the upset on the faces of people who I trust and who I love. Had you been holding it inside that entire yeah. time though, when it comes to your friends? Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. one day. I, I talked about how, you know, verbally abusive it was all the time and like how intense, but I never talked about the rest of it with people. And I finally just thought if I, if I keep you out. I'm pushing you away. And when you push your lifelines away, you you feel more isolated and then your scarcity goes up again. So it was really interesting to talk to people who were just looking at the facts and not trying to downplay the facts to protect the the entity, the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, That was really helpful for me. And I'm, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. And by the way, I go to therapy when nothing's wrong. I think therapy is amazing. I think we need space to be in our own minds and look at our own patterns and understand what good and bad things we learned from our families and those systems and all of it. It's really important to have some self-reflection time. But I think that spending time excavating our own minds is so important. Also getting back into a physical routine became a lot of self-care for me. I sustained a pretty gnarly injury doing stunts in Chicago and uh, that coupled with just all that stress. One of the things that happened was I stopped exercising because I kind of couldn't and also I was just so fatigued and I've gotten back into a physical practice and now again it's calendared as though it's a meeting and Monday, Wednesday, Friday I'm in the gym with a trainer and she is a person who makes me feel very safe and makes me feel very strong and she challenges me and it's great and and I've realized that that is a thing that has to be non-negotiable for me and I don't want to be too woo-woo-y and get too into manifesting or whatever. I think there can be a little bit of spiritual bypassing in this like sending love and light. I'm doing like light work. (laughs) Like life is hard and life is not all light work. Okay. There's a lot of shadow and there's a lot of stuff we need to look at. But I do think that energy and intention are very powerful. And if you think about what you might want to manifest, then if the word manifesting makes your skin crawl, throw it away. But at least you've thought about what it is you want in your life more and I realized that as a person whose baseline is joy and optimism and fighting for other people because I actually believe that that's where the best of the world comes from, I was missing out on the joy and the optimism a little bit. So I I look for it and now I see it everywhere. 
and it feels so beautiful oh it just feels so great like literally everywhere i look i'm like look at that cute puppy and everything feels everything feels like it's been touched with possibility everything feels illuminated and we have the power to create that for ourselves but sometimes the road to getting here is long and complicated and scary but you can always get out of the complicated and the scary and get to where it is you want to go. It's okay if it takes time and it's okay if it takes work. None of this stuff is meant to happen overnight. Like it isn't Instagram. It doesn't refresh every 30 seconds and that's okay. I think for me it's so interesting actually because I feel like the best types of self-care for myself are the ones that are always free. Mm. Yeah, tell me about your self-care. I want to well, know. Well, no, but I just feel like for a while it was like, oh, self-care is like means this like moisturizer. Yeah. You know, and it's like, ah. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, you don't have to pay for it. Yeah, you don't have to pay for it. It's really about like the talking circles, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a big one, yeah. Right. Focusing on a lot of the things that I hold deep gratitude for. Mm. Um. I do a lot of meditation, which I think is really great. What kind of meditation do you practice? Well, I don't even like put a name to it. I literally just wake up and like, well, it sounds so silly, but like I drink a liter of water every single morning and like that's my first like self-care thing because what I realized about myself too is that like I don't take the time throughout the day to take care of myself, but I know that water is very essential for me to live. Yes. And so (laughs) I like just every single morning like clockwork, like start with a whole liter of water, which I now love and it it makes me feel like a flower that was just like put in a vase, like Mm. alive. And then I sit and I breathe and I just like feel my body and ground myself in my space in my room for like Mm -hmm. 20 minutes and then just am like quiet and really focus on like I ask myself a lot of core questions. Do I want to be doing all the things that I'm doing right now, all the different elements of my life? Do I want to be in the relationship that I'm in? Mm -hmm. Do I actively choose this person, Mm -hmm. you know? I actively stop choosing, but you know, and you can do that too. And it's like, do I actively love my job? If I don't, I need to make a change. Are Mm -hmm. there elements of my job that need to be changed? Like how are these things feeding me? Because every single day as we go along, it's important that we realize that we are there because of our actions and reactions. Mm -hmm. And those can change your actions and your reactions, how you react to things, how you choose to go about things can change at any moment. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and I think that that becomes, to your point, practicing gratitude. I see how my reactions change when I think about that. When I set some feelings for myself in the morning, yeah. when I take some time for myself in the morning, I'm a different person all day. And you're right. It is free. That's yeah. the stuff that's really easy and free. Yeah. Um, we always talk about girl boss moments on this podcast mm. and a girl boss moment is sort of when you feel like you really owned something and was like your most authentic self in getting something done. What, what do you think is your most Ooh. favorite girl boss moment that's happened recently? Every time you post something on the internet, I feel like that's, that's a girl boss moment, <laughs> but I'm always like, yes, Sophia. Oh, I think for me, This year especially, it's had to do with a lot of showing up and speaking up. And uh, I recently interviewed Gloria Steinem, and she's the most incredible woman. And then we wound up spending a day together at the end of that week. And I was asking her all of these questions, and she said to me, she said, you're my dear, don't you see? If I were gone tomorrow, you would figure out how to do everything I've already done. And I was like, well, okay, I can walk out of this restaurant and get hit by a bus and just, uh, life is, <laughs> we've peaked. Like, that's it. And it but, it, but it was this moment where I thought, oh, wow, when my idol, who's becoming my mentor, tells me I'm doing it right, that made me feel like a girl boss. I was like, I got to own it. There's all these things that I know that I don't know. Yeah. But I have to own I have to own the good that I've done and I have to own what I do now. I have 200% confidence that there is nothing that you wouldn't be able to figure out. And um, 
I don't know. I am so happy that we talked today because Me it too. was so beautiful and amazing. And I think that we covered so many things that are so like relevant to so many people who are out there listening. And um, you've just been such a huge inspiration to me. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thanks, boo. <laughs> All right, everyone, that's our show today. I want to thank Sophia so much for joining us on Girl Boss Radio and being so open and candid. I'm incredibly happy that I was able to guest host this episode of Girl Boss Radio for you. And if you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, be sure to check out the other podcast I host called In Progress. We have some amazing, heartfelt conversations in there with some incredible people. I know you won't want to miss In Progress, so be sure to get over there and subscribe now. As always, if you love what we're doing on the show, please rate and review Girl Boss Radio on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share the podcast with a few friends. Let them know that it was amazing. They should listen and not to miss these conversations. Okay, I'll talk to you next time. Bye for now.